I'm joined by uh, Nicholas Rapold, film comment. Uh, Kent Jones, um, writer, filmmaker, director of the New York Film Festival. Uh, Nick Pinkerton, Art Forum, and sundry others. So today we're going to be discussing the Coen brothers' Hail Caesar and Peter Greenaway's Eisenstein and Guanajuato, which both came out this Friday. What sort of connects these films is that Hail Caesar exists in a movie-verse and references and puts together a variety of Hollywood films from the 1930s to the 1950s, and Eisenstein and Guanajuato builds upon a whole other network of art and historical references. So there are multiple associations you could make with both. Let's start off by talking about the films and stars that were referenced in Hail Caesar because that seems uh, more appealing. Well, I think one thing that's interesting to look at is these little clues are sprinkled all over the place, but it's part of the game of it, I think, to figure out what is significant and what is not. For example, you have the sort of Carmen Miranda-esque woman who's uh, uh, got the sobriquet uh, um, Carlotta Valdez and... (laughs) Is this actually something that has a lot of bearing on the material, or is it uh, a little bit about the uh, a little bit like the Mortimer Young uh, from Forever Young films introductions to uh, the Big Lebowski and Blood Simple? These sort of film historical inside jokes that almost seem to be there just to frustrate. Uh, folks like myself yes <laughs> <laughs> these little cul-de-sacs uh to get she's, drawn into but she's a construction carmen miranda the actress was a total yeah. construction and you get a hint that this woman is also a total construction in the way that carlotta valdez or maybe i'm reaching here but the way that uh <laughs> poor <laughs> poor madeline was a construction as well well you know if you want to reach and uh, I, I'm certainly game for it. I was Hold re- my ladder. I was, I was rereading uh, uh, a piece that Molly Haskell had written in The Village Voice about Vertigo, where she talks uh, about it specifically as a totally destabilizing experience. And if you really want to go out on a limb, you can say that that is t- true to a certain extent of Hail Caesar, where the movie verse never really ends. I mean, there's not a real life contrasted to a R-E-E-L life, ha, ha, ha. Um, So much as there is an all-encompassing simulacra. We're going to have to bleep that out. Please do. (laughs) But you see him at home with his wife, and, I mean, there's also the the realness of what the the headhunter from Lockheed Martin, that's Mm -hmm. very real, what he's talking about. And he, you know, he offers a photo of that very real thing. Because yeah, there's a darkness that underlies well, I mean, the film. There was also a Emperor Tiberius, and there was also <laughs> probably a historical Christ. And I'd but you're talking about the tone of the film. In other words, it always maintains this kind of like fable. Yeah. This fabulous tone, and then it's it's. Uh, you know, there's the scene, you know, the, the, the long shot, the crane up of the studio and Michael Gambon's narration and all that stuff, right? That's what you mean. Yes. Yeah. I mean, those scenes where, where Mannix is at home with his wife and they're just talking, he's, he's worrying aloud about his, his you know, whether to, to take this job offer or not. And uh, I mean, those were almost jarring to me because they're just, so they're played so plainly. Mm. Um, and, and she's supposed to be such a 50s housewife that she says some line where i like felt people like you know best or yeah, something you know along these <coughs> sort of overboard but but yeah the tone of that is it was for me almost a jarring switch from from the from the rest of it uh, because the way it's played and how much and just the division there between how he is at work and how he is at home they, they really seem to and to, to be honest i'm not i don't for me i'm not sure it came off well the, the, the trying to develop his actual like 
some sort of psychological realism <laughs> about his his own life and his own worries. I, I felt like it was one of the there's sometimes Coen Brothers movies where they try to develop something like that and it just doesn't quite uh, doesn't doesn't take like I see it <laughs> I see <laughs> them trying to do it too much and, and it's hard to break away from the rest of the artifice that that they've they've constructed. I don't, I don't it seems to me that the Mannix character is a very sort of impersonal personality at the center of the movie. And because of that, <coughs> interesting for a couple reasons. Again, if you want to, if you want to read into it, he seems to share a lot of characteristics that are frequently attributed to the Coen brothers, an extraordinary punctuality. Uh, a almost uh, a business-like impersonality, uh, general a general uh, remoteness from uh, the business at hand. Uh, not sure I'm willing to go down that particular uh, rabbit hole, but it is there for the taking. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> a general remoteness from the business at hand. What do you mean? Uh, that is to say that they're he's removed from. Well, I mean, this is generally a line that uh, is out on the Coens, I would say, that they are not very much in the pictures, or it's hard to pin them down. Mm -hmm. The idea of injecting the stuff about his home life and about his beliefs, you know, it starts off with him in the confessional booth weeping um, because he's torturing himself for having lied to his wife or something like that. You know, I can't remember. Right Sneaking now. cigarettes. Sneaking cigarettes. That's right. <laughs> right. That's the big thing. But, I mean, the thing is that they're, wor they're always working in this kind of structure where you expect finality, where everything is rounded off, where you have a narrator, and it's like, you know, a fable of something. But then what winds up happening, this has always been kind of true, but that, I mean, you know, they had the structures with Miller's Crossing and Big Lebowski of ending up back at the beginning, you know, somebody pursuing something and they wind up kind of back where they started and, you know, nothing is solved. And then at the end of the Big Lebowski, there is no mystery, you know. There's just, you know, a girl riding around with her toe cut off. But um, <laughs> in um, Serious Man and Inside Lewin Davis and this one, there's another move towards... Um, having people trying to figure out what's going on ultimately. Like, what's the big picture? What's the big answer? How does it all fit together? And then it doesn't. And so, you know, in this one, um, the way that they put together <laughs> his belief, his, his, his very devout, you know, very pious Christianity, forgetting about who Eddie Mannix was and, you know, what he did, but just for the moment thinking about that, his Christianity, and then these guys who think, you know, the, the communists, and putting the, those two things together I thought was kind of hilarious and, like, one of their best moves. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the mixing and matching of stuff, sort of m veering in and out of real people and invented stuff and taking movies like... You know, the, the, the um, Scarlett Johansson production number is kind of like a 50s movie, but kind of like a Busby Berkeley movie. Um, the scene of the Sailor production number with Channing Tatum <coughs> is kind of like on the town, but it's kind of like it's always fair weather. And the scene with the soldiers in the bar. Or, as Nick suggested, also a little <coughs> bit like Carell. Huh. <laughs> like Carell? Carell. Carell. Oh, Carell. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and then, and then, <coughs> merrily we dance. The what is it? Lawrence Lawrence uh, yeah, movie yes. looks, you know, more like a early '40s kind of yes. drawing room, uh, well, continental drawing room comedy. Shot in black and white, no less. Shot in black and white, and we see um, what's Hobie Doyle's uh, film, uh, Old Lazy Moon, or something yeah. like this. We go to the Which Old looks Lazy like something from the early '30s. But it's filmed in yeah. 1.5 aspect yeah. ratio. <laughs> but I think that they're, I mean, these guys. Know, oh, they know. They know exactly what they're doing. And the, the thing that I thought was really um, striking is that when you see that, even in the trailer, when he's brought into the house where all the communists are, that's the seventh victim. 
<laughs> Not really. I mean, yeah. the way that it's framed and all the people sitting around in this room with the different levels on it, that's the, the devil worshippers and the seventh victim. And um, that's interesting. So that, that it's sort of like, you know, they're a coven. Um, and then they're not really bent on taking over the world. They just want 100 grand. <laughs> and <then> they decide <laughs> at the last minute that they're going to send it back for the good of the cause and it gets thrown in the ocean and that's the end of that. Um, well, it's also petty cash. That right, was what killed right. me is that they just have <laughs> yeah. this giant sum of money lying around and the pro- yeah. the real the problem is is the suitcase big enough to transport it safely? <laughs> right. That's right. And the mixing and matching of real stuff, you know, the whole thing with George Clooney worrying about the story getting out, that's the famous Clark Gable, William Haynes story um, that may or may not be true. There's, uh, I don't know, you know, probably some of the other stuff you could you could find analogs, I'm not really yeah. sure, but they sort of like, there was a real Eddie Mannix, but he was a much more, they don't really get into the, to the really like dirty stuff that the real Eddie Mannix did. It's actually in... Uh, what was the name of Hollywood, Hollywood Land? Land? Yeah. yeah, the Ben Affleck okay. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting kind of... But it's different from their other movies in the sense that it's a lot of different pieces. Y- and that has to do with the fact that it's a movie studio and all these you know uh, different films are being made. That allows them to have a structure that's kind of like moving into different registers at different times and then suddenly you're in the middle of this world and you're in that world and then they take that and extend it into the structure of their film itself um that was pretty cool yeah i mean i guess the home scenes i mean they kind of resemble like a certain type of i mean i thought a little bit of like glenn ford at home with the wife and the big heat jocelyn brando (laughs) right well maybe we can return again to the question the question of big questions and the i won't i don't want to say oriental like the sort of fetishistic uh funny distanced approach to christianity that that is in the film and sort of what's interesting is that Eddie Mannix is such a obviously a pious individual or or has very strong feelings about right and wrong and yet when there's a you know an assembly of different religious groups he just completely steps back from any sort of interpretation of who the Christ was and lets them go at it and it's like but he doesn't who but and it's like well you could see that as it's like well he's just playing this moment because he has it's like a focus group and he's not supposed to interject but he almost either moments where he seems legitimately confused and like trying to puzzle it out as if he had never thought about this before well he doesn't want a theological discussion he just wants validation from these guys and instead they're giving him the fine points of theology but the hilarious part is that it's all we have it all figured out and then you know it's explained and then it becomes this incredibly complex thing because of course trying to explain you know the christ dying for all of our sins you know to the rabbi is just like some that's gobbledygook you know the nazarene <laughs> yeah and then and then you know by the same token you know when the communists are explaining the the dialectic, know, the dialectic yeah. and you know and, and then you know it's the, the movie star <laughs> thinks that he's like you know seen the light i, I mean Pro- I, probably the single funniest moment for me is when hobie doyle blows into the malibu beach house and clooney like a few cocktails in greets him with oh you're a communist too <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was like great. takes nothing to indoctrinate this <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean the, the, the scene with the diff- the different representatives of religious representatives, it was like some pitch meeting that's just yeah. gone around. <laughs> or a story conference. <laughs> story conference. Yeah. Yeah. But this is the big, I mean, in, you know, in a serious man, the whole thing with the brother working out his elaborate mathematical mm-hmm. formula for, you know, that's going to explain everything, you right. know, for instance. And then yeah. when he finally looks at it, he's, you know, when his brother finally sees it, he's absolutely mortified right. and realizes his brother's gone crazy. Um, things like that. These are things that I think have, have things that I think have interested them more and more. Well, yeah. and I also thought a little bit of the sort of fine points of contractual negotiation that start out Bridge yes. of Spies, which, I mean, I I haven't seen the script uh, or the different drafts of the script, but that just feels like it has their oh, fingerprints the oh, all the over it. My guy versus yeah. it's not fi- it's it's one accident. It's not five accidents. Yeah, that's the that's sort that's of uh-huh. legal hermeneutics that open that film yeah yeah and there's a peter greenaway connection because he michael gambon narrated this film yes that's right oh wow. and he's in their best he, he's in his best film 
<laughs> well, speaking of Peter Greenaway, then <laughs> there's a larger connection in the sense that Greenaway's film is also incredibly predicated on making these references and building off of these associations, you know, visually splitting the screen, imp- superimposing different items, having, you know, in terms of what's hanging on the walls, the photographs that are used. Um, but it's a completely different set of references from the Coens. What what did you make of that? I mean, I was it as compa- as a, as someone who lives and sort of breathes and is an expert in film? Was it as compelling? I mean, I think it's really a dreadful, dreadful movie, uh, just <laughs> hectoring. And I should say, I have a sort of bone deep, not even terribly well thought out aversion to Peter Greenway, so maybe I should recuse myself from talking about his films at all, because it's just a temperamental dislike that's never been worked through particularly but, well. But what is it, but where does that, but no, you can say it, what, like, what is it, where does it come from? I don't know, it's the same feeling, I, I was thinking about this on the walkover, that I get from, like, Rococo paintings and, like, Captain Beefheart records, they're just <laughs> things I know that I dislike, and uh, perhaps at some point in life I need to question this. With regards to the latest, as somebody who doesn't particularly have uh, much sympathy for the Peter Greenaway project, it becomes a little bit touching if one thinks about it as one somewhat out-of-vogue filmmaker's tribute to another somewhat out-of-vogue filmmaker. Uh, That's about the most sympathetic point of entry that I could find to it. But Peter Greenaway doesn't want your sympathy, and he doesn't want uh, emotional identification. Well, he certainly didn't get the latter. Yeah, no, because he's not Any any port in a storm here, Violet. I'm trying to give you something to work with. (laughs) (laughs) Let me flip it and put it in a different way. I don't understand why he makes movies anymore. I've I, I, I felt that way for quite a while. I, 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 there was a period in the 80s when I thought, okay, this is interesting. It's an interesting kind of direction that he's gone. And it ended um, around the time of Prospero's books. I went to it and I was just baffled as to why he went to the trouble of making a film. It looked to me and felt to me like his, you know... Um, instincts and his energies were moving in a different direction and it looked to me like a film that should have been not a film but broken up into different pieces and playing in a gallery and I mean he's definitely been part of that world that's that's you know who he is but when he's in public presenting one of his films he kind of acts like he doesn't want to be there and the way that he makes films doesn't feel like he has any investment in filmmaking anymore just visual layering Lots of visual layering. To me, he's the complete opposite of the Coen brothers. I'm a little bit wary of talking about the Coen brothers' movies only in terms of what they refer to, because I think that that tells about an eighth of the story. Oh, sure. I think that they really are, you know, and, and they've, they've become formidable filmmakers. Of uh, They started good, and they got, you know, they've just gotten better and better. And they've gone deeper and deeper into um, filmmaking. Greenaway uh, seems to have gotten further and further away from filmmaking. I was watching the film and I just felt like, did he edit this? You know, what did he do in the room with the editor when he looked at the way that these sequences were assembled? What was happening there? You know, just giving like a generalized kind of directive. I wanted to feel like this. You know, follow your own instincts or. Was there an editor? I don't know. It's, it's, it's very it's, puzzling it's, to me. It's almost like an animate like lookbook that one yeah. puts together before yeah. actually starting the shoot. I agree. Yes, that's right. Like one, a, like a previs yeah. of a movie. Yeah, yeah. His entire project has been since he started making films to sort of expand what narrative filmmaking is, and part of that because he was trained as a painter. He's not mm. someone who really is, you know. He's mm. not interested in. Because I feel like the co- what the Coens are doing is, you know, refining and deepening existing things. And there's mm-hmm. it's wonderful to see that. It's, like, incredibly... As someone who loves movies, it's so yeah. much fun to see it. And, like, it's obviously we're all responding to that because mm-hmm. they're great at it. But with Greenaway, he's, again, he's, like, he's trying something else. And it doesn't always work. And, you know, I'm not going to say that I, <laughs> I loved this film, but there are moments... And I honestly, I feel like a lot of the references that he were he was making in this were kind of 
trite and a little boring and kind of like, okay, Mexico, Day of the Dead. Like, it's very sort of old hat almost. Mm -hmm. But then, I don't know. I I was, I actually really liked Night Watching. So, I don't, has anyone seen? Well, not really liked. I like parts of it. I, I, I will say there's every reason to think that there is a movie in this material because mm. I think Que Viva Mexico, I was thinking about this uh, on the way over. Can you name a more influential movie that was never finished? Mm. Right. It's, I mean, it's a pretty epochal, unfinished <laughs> movie, particularly in terms of what it meant to you know, Mexican national cinema. Uh, but that movie has not been made. I I wanted to maybe uh, piggyback on something that Kent was saying uh, about the run that the Coens have been on, Mm -hmm. and the question you ask yourself while watching the Greenaway movie is sort of, you know, who is the projected audience for this? Whereas something that is very interesting to me about this Cohen's run, which we can say approximately starts in 2007 with No Country for Old Men, is not only are they working, I think, at a very high level conceptually and on down the line, Mm -hmm. but these are popular movies that do well and that a lot of people see. And that's, I mean, how many instances of that can you point to? With the exception of The Serious Man, though, right? Yeah, that I mean, I don't know what the... Do very well, which I is don't perhaps the greatest of them all. Uh, but um, No ranking. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> so uh, not allowed. <laughs> yeah, Greenaway feels like... Yeah, th- you're absolutely right. You can, you kind of like... It feels to me like he's a guy who's hooked into another world and who just kind of makes movies every once in a while because he feels like he has to or maybe it's a nice thing to do or something yeah. like that. <laughs> you know, he has access to the, to the machinery of it. Um, well, he has like a patron or something. So yes, he does. He yes. Just, uh, which I guess may not really be helping him at this point in, this, in the yeah, sense of just know. you get it, you know, you can make it no matter what. And if you're not developing, that's maybe, maybe some pressure might have been helpful. I don't know. I think he thinks he's developed. Well, yeah. well, it doesn't matter what he. Th- I, but I mean, <laughs> it, it, well, yeah, that's the, that's the important. That's like nowhere is it more clear. Like directorial intent does not matter than these films. Like it's like, yeah. sorry, you you intended this, but I don't like it. Slash, I don't care. Slash, it doesn't really work. So, but that's where I mean, I don't. You'd mentioned that you, you'd said that he's trying to extend narrative film. I would have to part company with you there because I do not feel like there are characters. There have been any characters in his movie. He doesn't I, want in character. any of his movies. Well, he he did when he made it, the Cook the Thief his wife and her lover. He did when he made the Draftsman's Contract. I mean, there are actual characters right. in those yeah. movies. They just don't exist, and which is w- one of the things that I found really puzzling about Prospero's books. I mean, here you've got John Gilgood playing one of Shakespeare's greatest characters, and he's not a character. But it's because he's interested in visual layering. He's deep into something else. But then he's making a movie. Um, so it becomes you become invested in it as a narrative, and that's where the frustration begins. Well, there's sort of concepts yeah. fighting out. There, there are concepts instead yes. of characters having these conflicts, and yeah. there's he's not the only person to do that. Like obviously, obviously, there are plenty of films where it's like, well, this character is representative of a concept, maybe, but he just completely jettisons anything that resembles character, or it, or it becomes more theatrical elmer bach who plays eisenstein is just so i mean it's it's like cartoon it's it's totally cartoonish mm-hmm. it's not like cartoonish it is cartoonish well there's also the question of it's arrhythmic right so it doesn't you know it doesn't advance in any direction it's kind of like you know um you mentioned that eisenstein is out of fashion yeah which is I suppose true to a I certain mean, extent. I mean, everybody. Potemkin's fashion, you know. Potemkin's fallen off the sight and sound list for the first time yeah. ever. Yeah. Uh, That's because too many people were forced to watch it. <laughs> too many people were probably forced to watch it in very bad doopy prints, though. Because if you look at right. the Blu-ray of Potemkin, you know, Kina released, or yeah. if you look at it on a big screen, even better. It's a different kind of experience. Um, but Th- there's. But th- no, I just want to say that that Leah Jacobs book about film, sound, and oh, rhythm, yeah, right. 
makes a lot of references to, you know, she goes deep into mm -hmm. Ivan the Terrible. And I mean, you know, Eisenstein had something that's just, he had a formidable sense of, of, of uh, rhythm and movement, something that just doesn't exist in Green Hour. Yeah, it's true. And by the way, Captain Beefheart is, that's, that's a, something for you to discover. <laughs> Speaking of rhythm. There's a long, arduous road ahead of yeah. me. <laughs> Plenty of time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I should say also something that uh, no one can deny of Eisenstein is the great faces. And I thought about this with regards to uh, our topics today because who, uh, you know, who casts great uh, sort of typage uh, but the Cohen brothers. Yes. And they have probably the greatest like gallery of grotesques <laughs> of a long career of uh, such uh, collections in, in Hail Caesar. Uh, you mentioned the uh, initial entry into the study group. I mean, it's uh, an incredible tableau vivant. Yes, yes. And the photographer cameo, I think, is very nice as well. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I usually would be like, no, but this was, I was like, all right, I'll allow it. He's great. But I think going back to, you know, similarities and differences between Eisenstein and Greenaway, the biggest is that, you know, you can understand Eisenstein's project is it's very much bolstered by melodrama. Potemkin is a melodrama, and it's like, you know, there are these really hard plays for emotion, you know, in addition to this dialectic and, you know, the way that, you know, these crazy shots of stairs and all this stuff, and, you know, this contrast, this constant contrast, there is like this heavy emotional feel, you know, end of strike, what have you. But with Greenaway, again, it's, you know, he, I, one of the lines that he repeatedly trots out is that you don't, you don't expect to fall down crying in front of a painting. And why should you do that for a film? But obviously what's nice about film is that you do get an emotional response. I, I agree with you that uh, Battleship Potemkin is better than Peter Greenaway's <laughs> <laughs> Eisenstein movie. <laughs> starring, I don't think there's a contest. Starring <laughs> Yahoo Sirius's young Dr. Einstein. Dr. Steve Brule. Stock, yeah. <laughs> Do you think he gets himself all tingled up mm. when he makes statements like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, you look at a, a painting you know, and you really confront it and really look at it. And yeah, you could fall down and start crying. Of course. They call it Stundell syndrome, by the way. Right. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's as if he doesn't, it's as if he's got a really, um, he's really hell bent on divorcing um, the experience of, of, of art from emotion, which is a very, very odd project. But um, it's also, he's also very obviously agitating too. You know, the diarrhea, the, the bleeding, the ass fucking, like all this stuff in the in the film is like very much like, th you know, thumbing its nose at propriety. But it's like, wh whatever intended audience this is, it's not going to shock them. Like it's just sort of like, oh, okay, now you know. I mean, again, what is this audience? Yeah, whoever this be uh, <laughs> these uh, Europeans. An auditorium <laughs> full of Margaret Dumont's, <laughs> who, upon seeing the director of Ivan the Terrible. Uh, surrendering his anal virginity will <laughs> gasp and clutch yeah. at their pearls. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, John Jonathan Romney and his he, he he wrote about it for for his film of the week column this week, um, the the Greenaway movie, and he said it's you know there's often the struggle of figuring out who Peter Green the ideal audience for Greenaway movies uh, you know is other than Peter Greenaway himself. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Quite right. <laughs> In, in discussing uh, audiences, uh, something that occurred to me when, when thinking about the Coens and when thinking about uh, Hail Caesar is the fact that they seem to have imperceptibly crept from this sort of movie brat, uh, enfant terrible status to, I feel like I heard you use this phrase with uh, regards to No Country for Old Men, like uh, a neo-cinema of quality, uh, almost. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Invent no. a way. That's great. <laughs> no. No. But, it, uh, I, it might have been my Kent Jones hand puppet that I was talking <laughs> yeah, to, as I will. That's, what you, that's how you prepared for this. Where yes. you're like, I'm going to say this now. Well, I reply. <laughs> well, they turned a corner. I mean... No, uh, with the Big Lebowski, maybe they turned a corner. 
I just and and I know there's certain critics, arguably some of the best critics of their generation, who have just no time whatsoever for the Coens. I mean, I don't know what uh, Hoberman thinks about the last couple. I don't know what uh, Dave Kerr thinks about the last couple. I read Rosenbaum a little bit on the subject of Lewin Davis. Uh, they seem to really get under people's skin up to a point. Yeah, um, it's kind of sh- in a way that it does not occur to me in any way. Yeah, and it, it seems to be a generational divide, I would go so far as to say. Mm. And I don't know exactly what it is. I think a lot of it is tied up in that old saw that they're indifferent to or contemptuous towards uh, their characters some of it i think is their relationship with film history which is not ignorance but almost a certain amount of it's a perverse mixing and matching yeah Mm -hmm. and a certain willful sort of disrespectfulness Mm -hmm. uh towards traditions that's right uh (laughs) Yeah, and, and I don't know if, I mean, I don't want to for a moment suggest that they are any kind of underdog at this point, uh, but. Well, they're underdogs to the extent that they're artists, and every artist now in film is an underdog. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that there's any, I mean, you know, every, it's getting harder and harder, but I do think that they, it's this business of, you know, they don't love their characters. Um or, and also faith. It uh, has a lot to do with their relationship to Judaism. I mean, I'm thinking, thinking specifically of Hoberman. Yeah. Well, serious man, yes, unless I'm mistaken, he called that a, an anti-Semitic film. Right. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a really funny... It, I remember being on... Yeah, I've read a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they, you know, their inhumanity towards their characters, their cruelty towards their characters... It's a very, very strange notion. It sounds good when you just like type it, you mm-hmm. know, or, you know, good in your ear. Um, it sounds authoritative, and you know, it sounds like you're sticking up for the little guy um, and being morally. To um, use a phrase that occurs in Hail Caesar, of course, I'm for the little guy. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think that um, if you really examine. I mean, f- let's let's put it this way. I think that film criticism has had a problem. It's kind of tug of war, a back and forth with um, character and narrative. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you get a similar complaint about uh, Billy Wilder. It's kind of the same thing. It's almost identical, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know... Temperamentally, you could say that they're a little bit similar, you know, up to a point. But I think that um, it's because there was so much energy invested in trying to separate cinema from other art forms and say that what's great in cinema is not dependent on other art forms and a good movie could be made out of anything and you could, you could work with any actors and it doesn't matter whether Maxwell Fools had Martin Carroll for... Lola Montez, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he was a great, a great director, he's a great director, he's a great director, and, you know, it doesn't matter who or what they're working with. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter what the story is, and if it's imperfect, who cares? You know, it's the cinema that counts. So the, that's still present, um, you know. And then on the other hand, there is the sense of, like, you know, a violation of, like, um, kind of an ideal of group solidarity with the cones. I mean, I I think it's also worth mentioning the lingering suspicions of (laughs) crypto-conservatism that hang over uh, some of the movies and in actually having a sort of communist study group who are like these absolute creep villains (laughs) from, uh, like, uh, Pick Up on South Street or uh, something like this. Mm, It's... it's, it's quite... Well, it's almost, I, I thought of like uh, Larry Clark uh, sucking on adolescent toes in The Smell of Us. It's almost like uh, mm. giving ammunition to the detractors <laughs> uh, sort of gesture, uh, which maybe yeah. makes it seem like they care more about what other people think about them than they actually do. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they... I, I mean, trying to um, attribute um, coherent political thought to films is always going to be a losing game. Sure. And so, you know, it's, it's, there is no such thing. I mean, you could say if you really wanted to, you know, maybe with certain films, most of them aren't that aren't going to be that great. <laughs> but the mo- but any movie that's going to be alive is going to jump past its own coherence mm-hmm. in order to stay true to, you know, what the energies of the movie itself. I mean, you know, if the coherence is your is your is your um stated goal, then you're not going to come out with a great movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I mean, maybe Salt of the Earth some people would throw up as an exception, but I, I, I'm not sure that they're that they would be right about that. And um, I think that it's used as a weapon. It's used as a stick to kind of beat filmmakers sometimes. But as far as like actual fact and genuine like you know conservatism in their work, come on. I mean, it's not yeah. it's not really it's not a charge that, yeah. that sticks. But I, I mean, you certainly saw this with some of the contemporary. Dialogue around Barton Fink and with the what was thought of as kind of the burlesquing of a uh, Clifford Odets stand-in, which of course he's not Clifford Odets. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Clifford Odets who names names, <laughs> that Clifford Odets. <laughs> you know, I mean, what they're always trying to do is they're always trying to uh, say everything is always more complicated than you know it can't be wrapped up neatly. Um, there are different impulses that are going to be pushing people. This film has been criticized as sort of like, well, or Michael Schrager specifically criticized it for being, you know, it's praising this man who is working for a system, this ruthless system, and he chooses a system. However, his other option, his other potential allegiance, which, which would be far easier for him to take yeah. in every respect, is, is Lockheed Martin. Yeah. Do you mm-hmm. feel like that's part of it? Well, I mean, it seems to me that the crux of the thing is it's a crisis of faith movie, mm-hmm. and if anything is resolved. And it's funny because it does feel, because the architectonics of the movie are such, because it's so full of these nice counterbalancing scenes, uh, it's so finely filigreed a thing, it feels very satisfactory in its conclusion, yet... I can't for the life of me tell you what sort of satisfactory conclusion has been come to other than the fact that the crisis of faith, the idea should a grown man be involved in this, uh, you know, rather silly business has been at least put aside for a little while. But because the, because the artistry of it is such, uh, there is a certain, feeling of satisfaction with the harmoniousness of the object and uh, you said praising michael said you know it's praising this guy and that's where i would certainly part company i mean again you're getting into the it gets it gets into this question of like when people want to criticize something they start getting into very rigid formulas parallels rules borderlines you know stuff like that and so um you feel for Michael Corleone when you're watching The Godfather, but he's certainly not, <laughs> you know, a guy that you would want to... I, I mean, I, Or I, conversely, you wouldn't say, Colonel Kurtz, got to respect him. He's such a hard yeah. worker. Yeah, well... He went to flight school. He went to junk school so late. And, and, well, so and also hard Willard, the guy that Martin Sheen plays. I mean, yeah. you know, this is the guy who shoots, you know, the woman. He's like, we got to keep going down river. But, I mean, in the Cone's own work, you know, um, Lewin Davis is an extremely disagreeable human being. You know, um, from beginning to end, and you know that scene where he's at the dinner and he tells, you know, the woman, the hostess, you know, stop, you know, you know, stop singing. I don't, I'm not going to sing that song. Fuck you. You know, okay. I mean, um, he's the center of the, you know, he's the hero of that movie. You know, and he's sitting there and he's like singing a song to his father and thinking that he's moved. <laughs> it's like it turned out he's had a bowel movement. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's like one thing. And then, you know, at the end, when everybody decides, you know, to be nice to him again and that they like him again, it's just kind of pure. It's very mysterious. Um, you don't know. So I, I, I think that that's something that they're great at. And, you know, they're not involved in 
making movies where the Josh Brolin character, if anything, he's probably um, he's just as he's just as compromised as the mm-hmm. real Eddie Maddox, probably. Although they don't have him doing putting a hit out on George Reeves. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, which maybe didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say. I mean, from a different direct, they kind of do it from a different direction for the George uh, George Clooney character in another way of kind of deepening or, or just respecting his re- emotional response to things i mean without giving away the ending too much but i just i love the way that <laughs> he's able to translate this experience for him that yes. <laughs> clearly blew his mind in some way yeah. and ends up channeling it channeling it into a performance he does so that you know you have this kind of funny montage of people mm. <laughs> reacting to it um and i thought that was that was interesting so instead of just being this you know, oblivious buffoon. Uh, yeah. You actually, he has a response, and we see it, and it actually maybe it makes a better scene until <laughs> something else happens. But <laughs> there, there was um, around the time of uh, the blacklist, there was a, a whole sort of essayistic category of actors who had been lightly compromised, who would, uh, in you know, various uh, public uh, venues, offer forward their like mea culpa essay, how the Reds made a sucker out of me. Things like this, and I love how literal-minded the movie is. In like, you're literally slipped a Mickey by the <laughs> Reds. <laughs> and yeah. you wake, wake up, up in the pool <laughs> in the pool room. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing that's interesting is that they're not blacklisted. They're a bunch of communists. They're a communist cell, but they're not blacklisted. It's pre-blacklist. They're making sort of veiled references to the fact that there's not going to be future meetings or something like that. Things are heating up, yeah. yes. But th- but the great thing is that you know one of them is bragging about how much communist content he yes. got into you know one <laughs> of the movies, <laughs> which is you know also hilarious. <laughs> Just hoping people catch it <laughs> desperately. I mean, I find it very moving the the way that they've, you know, in this movie with Eddie Mannix, he's a little lighter, you know, kind of a lighter version of this. But the way that they've built these movies around people who are looking for an answer. You know, the guy in A Serious Man, the Michael Stuhlberg character, I, it to me is immensely moving because he's just, he keeps, yeah. you know, he wants to meet with that rabbi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to give him the answer, you know, the, the, you know, once and for all. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's very. There's something that feels very familiar about that to me. You know, I mean, I'm not sure if it's an enterprise that people are as involved with now as they were when I was growing up. But that you know, that movie felt very true to me. I wasn't raised, you know, a, as a Jew, but I was raised, you know, with among around parents who've had that kind of like desire. And it's the same thing with Tommy Lee Jones in No Country for Old Men. He's just he wants to. Why is Mm-hmm. You know, they're evil in the world. Or um, inside Lewin Davis, you know, trying to go into Chicago. I mean, you know, I mean, the, it, it's all, I find that very touching. It's also there in Burn After Reading, by the way, which is kind of an underrated movie, I think. It's a hilarious one. Maybe a little funnier than Hail Caesar. Not to get into Greenaway again, but <laughs> that Please, seems like a pretty God. dead end. Yes, I'll, I'll spare us all. <laughs> Um, both the Coens and Greenaway came of age during, you know, this big wave of independent film. Now the independent production environment, if it even exists, is completely, totally different. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that the, you know, the people who fund their films, the production interests that they've aligned themselves to continue making films, do you feel like that has influenced the type of films that they make or that they can make? In the case of the Coens, I really don't see as the budgets have grown that there's been any kind of crucial compromise struck. If oh, anything, I'm not saying they're even more individualistic than they Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's a hindrance. I'm saying it's like there's uh, increasing potential to do more. When they made The Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty, I like Intolerable, Intolerable Cruelty. I think it's a very good movie, but I think that the, still... You could. F- it kind of felt like they were trying to strike a commercial balance. Mm. Right. Um, then No Country for Old Men. <laughs> you know that that sort of like obviously was no longer a concern at all, even though that film did very well. But you know, I mean, it's it's um, relatively speaking, and you know, Serious Man and Inside Llewyn Davis. These are not movies made by people who are 
worrying about you know um connecting with a broad audience they have a good relationship with working title they have a good relationship with scott rudin i mean you know um and they were among the first wave of independent people. Greenaway started in a different way, though. He came, he comes out of structural filmmaking, structuralist filmmaking, mm. whatever, yes. in the falls. I yeah. mean, you know, and out of television. And, and is a good 13 years older, I guess, 13, 15 years older. Yeah, he's in his 70s? Mm -hmm. Early to he's mid 70s. 73, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. so only... Yeah. Um, only seven more years before he kills himself because he's promised to kill himself at 80 because no artist made anything good after they turned 80. And on that note... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> good night, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> we are all going to open a vein <laughs> and drift away. <laughs> Goodbye, cruel film so culture. So said that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> So that's that. No, but I'm. But they. But they are. They came out of different, very different worlds. I would say. Oh, absolutely. But there was a time in the U.S. where you could go if you were in New York, Chicago, Detroit, L.A., or and probably places in between where you could see both of their films. And now, you can only see one. But again, he's he's diverged from cinema. I mean. You know, you're talking about a time when, okay, so, you know, Blood Simple and Raising Arizona and Barton Fink on the one hand, The Draftsman's Contract, Zed and Two Knots, mm -hmm. um, Drowning by Numbers and Cook the Thief as Wife and Her Lover on the other. But after that, he started to kind of really push in a different direction, um, I think. And um, Well, for me, the cutoff is always Baby of Massam. Yeah. And how punishing mm -hmm. and alienating that film mm -hmm. was obviously there's a lot of formal crazy formal stuff going on and stuff in um the pillow book yeah. or you know again prospero's books but baby masson is a is visually it, it doesn't engage in any of that extra screen stuff and yet it is incredible <laughs> it's just like it's totally off-putting for different reasons and yeah. i think the public reaction from that and the fact that he didn't have you know Michael Nyman, Michael Nyman's music, I think, is a fundamental, is a Michael crucial. Michael Nyman's music definitely played a big role in the early movies, but yeah. then so did Vim, Vim Merton's music. I mean, you know, he, he worked with composers that were, but Michael Nyman and the Cook the Thief is Wife and Her Lover, that's. But I mean, I, I think specifically. Quite a partnership. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even just mean like the fact that they had a great partnership. I think mm. the music itself carries, is that crucial fill-in for emotion that you don't get in the film itself and like you know you have this swooping baroque music that helps you get through chewing over proper uh uh etiquette at the dinner table you know i don't think that it's a fill-in or not they're, a fill-in but it's helping it's, it's sure but they're working in tandem i mean they were I don't think it's just like Peter Greenaway delivered a movie and then Michael it said to Michael no, no. give it some emotion. No, I know no, I'm <laughs> clearly know? not. Yeah. But I mean it, it's it, it's again it's complimentary. Yeah. Um, I just if I can just branch off from that and, and just from the notion of collaborators and repeat collaborators, I'm kind of interested if you want to talk about it, that a bit for, with the Cone brothers, um like with Carter Burwell. Yeah, with Carter <laughs> Burwell and, and, and Roger Deakins as well. I mean uh, Yeah. Yeah, he definitely s sets the tone. I was trying. It sets the tone. Some the, of the tone. Uh, for the the costumer too, whose name escapes yeah, who me. Is that? Uh, I cannot remember her name for the life. Violet, punch that in yes. if you could. <laughs> but who? You got it, sweetheart. Dresses <laughs> Tilda Swinton in those really extraordinary. Oh yes, <laughs> those <like> hats. <laughs> Mantis-like costumes. Yeah. <laughs> and the production designer too. Yeah, I don't know. I was just thinking about uh, Roger Deakins' photography, and and I was trying to figure out what it is exactly about the particular hue or color because there is to a certain extent there's a certain i don't know because i will say that unlike so many movies released now they don't have that palette you know like overly color corrected palette right. their movies don't look like other you know 99 percent of movies that are made now that you know they've been futzed with and they have like a blue or an orangey tint I mean, Inside Llewyn Davis wasn't shot by Roger Deakins and mm -hmm. looks just as beautiful as their other films, I think, if not more so. Was it Bruno Dubonnel? Yeah. yeah. Dubonnel, right? Dubonnel. <laughs> <laughs> um, they don't... 
I mean, you know, anybody, uh, I think visual style generally originates with directors. And, you know, directors have a habit of working with great DPs, but like when the director is good, the visual style is all of, of a piece and, and right. the DP doesn't. Um, doesn't originate they, with it. They yeah. work, yeah, yeah, they work mm -hmm. with the DP. And, sure. you know, I mean, I think Paul Thomas Anderson's movies are all shot by Ellswit. Right, but the master isn't. But it doesn't. It's just as beautiful right. as you know. And, and you know, Spielberg's got this partnership with Janusz Kaminski, but still, it's it's still, yeah. it's different from yeah. what Roger Deakins brings to Sicario. Right. I think. No. I, yeah. No. Certainly true. Um, but the, but the palette is really different. It's not. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know. I think a lot of filmmakers skew yellow because when they sh when they use digital, it's it does skew yellow. I think even now, I'm not uh, I believe it's like orange and aquamarine yes. are the yeah. those are the, the the palette uh, yeah. du jour uh, as seen in Jurassic World yeah. um, and the Superman movie. There was yeah. actually a really nice video essay where they were like, "Well, let's look what this movie actually would have looked like without all this color correction." It doesn't look bad. Like it, I was like, I would watch that. <laughs> I wouldn't mind watching that. As it exists, it looks awful. It looks punishing. But so this leads right into our discussion of Batman versus Superman. Who's <laughs> gonna win, you guys? Uh, actually, if you had read my email, you would know that we're talking Suicide Squad. Oh. Spooky clown. <laughs> um, I think that they are really like. Um, Maybe a little bit less so in this movie, but in in Serious Man and Sir Lewin Davis, they've gotten so deep into like um, working on with light and um, the production design and getting like the the deep sense of what it's like to be in you know a walk up apartment in Greenwich Village in 1962 with the window mm -hmm. open and the fire escape. You know, I mean, right. it, it's like it's more than just like. Uh, really good production design you know that's mindful of the period it's something beyond that it's 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 kind of a vision well there's a, a very palpable and sustained mood in lewin davis where uh you know you really feel like you've been trudging around in wet socks yeah. all day it gets you there yeah that's and true it's i mean it's one of the handful of movies that i can think of in the past few years that i find that i really live with that yeah. movie it yeah ricochets around in my head space which probably says uh <laughs> more than i should care to give away about <laughs> myself and my uh prospects yeah. but uh i you know there there are uh, certain snippets of that movie that uh come back to me almost weekly yeah. which is a rare thing <laughs> yeah i th i i do think that they it's like the scale of it the scale of of life in it feels so right that mm -hmm. it's almost hair raising at times and the same thing is true serious man and that's something that I think that they've worked towards because in the earlier movies they kind of like in Barton Fink a lot of the sets are kind of you know the exaggerated the, 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 the way that the people are framed in the sense of the grotesques mm -hmm. um, and the frame is a little it's always a little bit too much and yeah, certainly Hudsucker Proxy Hudsucker Proxy in a big way level the same I mean another one that's a little bit of a transition is a movie that nobody ever talks about anymore is The Man Who Wasn't There which is a very haunting yeah, I haven't rewatched that in a I haven't long seen time. it in a while myself yeah but, yeah. Um, um, but with regards to the scale of Lou and Davis I'll just say it belongs to probably my favorite subgenre which is the kind of unambitious road trip movie yeah. it's <laughs> like New York to Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it's like back. something wild. Like we're gonna go from New York to Central Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The modestly scaled road trip and movie. To Harry and Tonto. Yeah. <laughs> North by Northwest. I'm also thinking of like uh, that unbelievable, you know, passage in Serious Man when he goes to the neighbor's house and gets stoned yeah. um, with the Jefferson Airplane song. I was just like, wow. Um, on that note, I think I'll go around and ask each one of you, uh, in the spirit of Last Ten Films, what is something you saw recently that you liked? Uh, I saw a Dirty Grandpa on Sunday. <laughs> 
and uh, had a really good time. He's a really filthy grandpa. Uh, the grandson, uh, portrayed movingly by Zac Efron, tried his darndest to keep the grandpa online, but he was just so filthy. You know, just after a certain age, a certain age, you know, somebody's personality is set, and you just really can't, you can't turn that ship around. What are you going to do? Well, it's interesting, because the crux of it is that uh, the titular dirty grandfather's wife dies, and oh, up really? to that point, he's been a pretty well-behaved grandfather. Interesting. But he has this last sort of will to fuck. That's really what it's it sort is. Of like this the last list? splurge of life force. Yes. So he hijacks his grandson and has him take him down to Fort Lauderdale. It, it's in a. It's like a bright pink Mini Cooper or something. Yeah, bright pink Mini Cooper. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it's not a good movie, but I enjoyed myself thoroughly while watching it. I That's also saw matters. Fifty Shades of Black. That's the other movie I saw this week. <laughs> <laughs> Not as enjoyable. <laughs> it was fine. Oh, okay. It's not up there with the topper, topper most of the popper most in the Marlon Wayans oeuvre, but it's okay. <laughs> hmm. Wow. What about you, Kent? Um, it has to be something old because I haven't. Ken actually movie. hates movies. Yeah, that's and true. he's just <laughs> doing this as a personal favor. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, after Bowie died, we all looked at the man who fell to earth again. Yes. And. Um, it was uh, very moving to watch it with my sons. They were they had never seen it, and it was moving to go back and listen to Bowie's music again, which I hadn't done in a long time. It's really interesting because I mean I can think of about twenty different ways that he could have started making movies, and that's the idea of making a movie in the middle of New Mexico with you know um, Rip Torn and Candy Clark is yeah. certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the ways that I would have imagined that he would have started. I, I'd forgotten just how much, how swiftly it moves through time, which mm. is um, really interesting. Mm. And the feel of it is very beautiful. The last thing I saw, actually, I'm just, I'm still catching up with past podcasts in a way, <laughs> maybe, because the last thing I saw was um, there was uh, There's Always Tomorrow. Uh, it was very moving just how it dealt in a pretty sensible way with a kind of, I don't know, with a, a situation that's usually tr- immediately ratcheted up into some, dr- you know, um, I don't know, venal drama or something. But uh, in, instead, just seeing people trying to work something out. I mean, it was it was almost like uh, I, I don't know. I, I was going to compare it just to uh, what's that? What's the movie where the, these uh, two kids are trying to get their pa- parents to? Do parents parent trap? Parent trap. I thought that's what you were referring to. <laughs> the parent trap, I mean, I guess it's, an, it's, it's a dumb comparison, but just in the sense that here's, what if you actually thought it through and saw what, you know, yeah. what people might be feeling and that it's yeah. kind of, I don't know how the years work out for those two. I guess that's much The parent after. trap uh, played yeah. for tragedy yeah. rather than comedy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But it also has this, I don't know. Uh, that could lo- be an alternate title for it too. <laughs> but it also has, a, you know, one of, several beautiful shots is the um barbara stanwick by the window in her hotel and and you know they do a shot that's usually played usually people talk about it for in in cold blood where someone's looking at the window Mm -hmm. and it's raining and the tears are streaming down but they have it right there and uh his character is very moving yeah yeah absolutely yeah Mm -hmm. i mean (laughs) it's the kids are kind of caricatured yeah the teens he even frames them like like i don't know when when the kids on the phone it's almost like it's some sort of like magazine picture of lying down with your legs behind you yeah 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 yeah. um but but yeah fred mcmurray (laughs) that's it's rough going to watch watch watch. i mean it's in a good yeah so that was so there's always tomorrow yes well, I, I kind of look like trash now because I said <laughs> And my film, to make you look even more like trash, is uh, Cemetery of Splendor, um, which I rewatched again recently. The first time I watched it, I was actually moved to tears several times. I was sort of shocked that I was. But uh, I don't know. I won't say too much about it because I wrote a review about it for the upcoming issue. I'll keep it under my hat what I thought, but I liked it. I'm not going to get too much in it, but I think it's a, it's a very fine movie. Just read what I wrote. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 15 years.